When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. And this is Dan Bear's interview with the screenwriter for The Whale, Samuel D. Hunter. I know these rules can feel constraining. But remember, the point of this course is to learn how to write clearly and persuasively. Think about that. Think about the truth of your argument. You're an amazing person, Ellie. I couldn't ask for a more incredible daughter. Are you actually trying to parent me right now? Who would want me to be a part of their life? You don't stay in touch with mom? She really only tells me things about you. Why? Because that's all I want to know about. Why'd you gain all that weight? Someone close to me passed away, and it had an effect on her. You haven't seen her since she was eight years old, and you're going to reconnect with her? Sorry. I don't like this. This isn't a good idea. I'm sorry. You say you're sorry one more time. I will shove a knife right into you. I swear to God. Go ahead. What's it going to do? My internal organs are two feet in at least. (laughs) Why do you suddenly need to see her so bad? Why now? I'm worried that she's forgotten what an amazing person she is. I need to know that she's gonna have a decent life where she cares about people and that she's gonna be okay. Welcome, everyone, to the Next Best Picture podcast, where we are talking with Samuel D. Hunter, screenwriter of the new film, The Whale. Samuel, thank you for joining us. How are thank you doing you so today? Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. Great. I'm glad to hear it. First of all, I love the movie. Thank you. Um, but second of all, uh, being a child first of the theater as I am, the thing that is particularly spoke to me about this play and why I wanted to talk to you was that The Whale began life as a play. Right. And I'm very interested in the process of adapting that play from the stage to the screen. So can why don't we start with talking about uh, what inspired you to write this play? Yeah, I so um, I wrote this play about 12 or 13 years ago is when I first started writing it. Uh, the process took a while. <clears throat> and I have to apologize. I'm a little hoarse because I was at the opening night party last night and it was very <laughs> No worries. Um, that is understandable. <laughs> um, but uh, so at the time, like Charlie in the film, I was teaching essay writing. And I was teaching at Rutgers over in New Jersey, both my 
then boyfriend, now husband, and and I were both teaching. And it was, we taught there not because like, I'm a great essay writer, because I'm not, uh, but because uh, it paid better than any adjunct theater classes in the city. Uh, and so we each taught two courses each semester, and that kind of allowed us to scrape by. Um, and it was a really valuable course, but like, it's also a course that's a state requirement. And so like, these kids were forced to take it. Uh, and none of them wanted to be there. And um, uh, I found myself at a certain point kind of going off script and just begging them to write something honest. Um, and like as a starting point, like we'll make it better, we'll make it into an essay, but just like write me something you actually believe. And I had this one student wrote me wrote, write me a line that ended up in uh, to the play and the screenplay, uh, which was, I think I need to accept that my life isn't going to be very exciting. It really just kind of broke my heart. And, and it was also this like incredible moment of honesty between me and this kind of disaffected 18-year-old. And so I thought, can I write a play about an expository writer trying to connect to a young person? And I had a few false starts, uh, but eventually I made the decision to take some uh, more personal stuff uh, and, and kind of imbue that into the story. Uh, to try to give it some, um, I don't even know, like some authenticity on, on my part. And, and my own story is that I, like Charlie, I grew up in Idaho in a, in a small town. I was gay. Uh, I went to a fundamentalist Christian high school. I was outed. I had to leave. Um, and that resulted in a lot of undiagnosed depression and self-medication with food. And I was able to find, you know, an off-ramp uh, mostly due to the the love of my family and my husband, but but I was acutely aware and am acutely aware that not everybody has that that off ramp, and so I started bringing some of those more personal details uh, to bear, and that resulted in this story about a father trying to reconnect with a daughter. Nothing that is directly autobiographical for me, but but springs from a personal place. Yeah, it's all the the characters are not necessarily from your life, but the themes no. and the things they're going through are things yes. that you've felt. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. How did the discussions begin about turning this play into a film? Was this something that you had wanted to do at any point, or was it not until someone came to you that you thought, oh? It was, I mean, literally it was a call saying, Darren Aronofsky wants to meet with you, and uh, <laughs> which was like a pretty insane call to get. I mean, I... Yeah. I you know, I mean, because I, it wasn't that I was like, I'm not going to write movies, but I was just like, I was just desperately trying to be in a New York playwright, like an off-Broadway playwright. And having uh, The Whale at Playwrights Horizons, which was one of my favorite theaters, remains one of my favorite theaters in the city. <laughs> what am I too? Just like, yeah, I mean, it's like the best. And, mm -hmm. and just having that, I, w I was like, I can't believe it. Like, I'm working alongside my artistic heroes. This is, this is wonderful. And so there, so having that phone call, I didn't even know that Darren had seen it. And so it was so, so shocking. <laughs> and, the you theater know, is the great equalizer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like the first time I met him, you know, I remember like I met him in an editing bay in like Midtown or Chelsea or something. And I like rounded a corner. I, I remember even like going to the receptionist and be like, I'm here to see Darren Aronofsky. And I said it and I was like, I'm almost embarrassed I'm saying this out loud because it feels like I'm not allowed to say that, you know? Uh, and so I, I remember like they showed me to the editing bay and like 
there's Russell Crowe's face on a giant screen. Oh my God. Yeah, it was very intense. <laughs> and, you know, but then we sat down and talked and Baron was such an, you know, friendly, affable guy. And he didn't have any hard ideas about what it could be or what it should be. And so we we just started like a very loose conversation. And um, in the beginning I did, after that meeting, I kind of ideated about ways to open it up, you know, in that traditional way of like adding location, adding characters. But like every time I did it, it just felt like something was lost. You know, it just felt like I was resisting the soul of the story by opening it up. And uh, it was either the second or third meeting I had with Darren. He said unprompted. He was like, I think we should keep it in the room. And I thought, oh, wow. Okay. Like, like we might be firmly on the same page about what this wants to be. But, you know, that was 10 years ago. So it was a very long uh, a very long process. Darren ended up making Mother, and but he's still at his company, still had the rights to it, so it kind of drifted around to a few other directors. Um, but they all kind of wanted to put something on top of it, uh, like like um, do something different with it. And I felt conflicted about it because I was like, I should be so lucky to be having these conversations with these directors about making this movie. But in the same token, I'm I'm like, this story is so close to me. You know, I created it from dust and and like I don't know how willing I am to just kind of like hand it over to somebody and then back away entirely. So, you know, after that, after those few years, I was like, you know what, this is probably not meant to be. That's fine. I, you know, I got to work on a script with Darren. Like I, I learned a lot. Um, I have that relationship. I really like him. But then like he renewed the option one last time. And by then I was kind of, when he called me and he said he wanted to renew it, I was just like, oh my God, like, let's just like, let this go. <laughs> this is not happening. Um, but, but then like a, a short time later, he called me and he was like, what about Brendan Fraser? And that was the very first, I knew that he had looked at a ton of actors, you know, like famous people, not famous people. I know that he had gone through the gamut, but he had never brought a name to me. And so when he brought me a name, I was like, oh, my God, he's serious about this. Like, he he thinks he can make it. Uh, and then we got together in a little theater that Darren rented in the East Village. Uh, and we did a reading with uh, Brendan and with Sadie, actually. Uh, and this was, like, before Sadie was, you know, the kind of, like, megastar. Oh, wow. Okay. Now. Yeah. It was just, it was, she was just, like, a kid from Stranger Things. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we did the reading. And. Brendan was just magnificent. I mean, it was just like so clear to everybody in the room. And like, I went to Darren afterwards and he was so energized. We were all so like, oh my God, I think we could actually do this. Like, you know, eight years later, we found him. Then a week later, the pandemic hit. Uh, oh so, God. <laughs> it just like all fell apart. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, Oh, like maybe once the pandemic's over, if it is ever over, maybe it'll happen. And like, you know, Darren and I were like communicating and he was like, I just don't know how to make this. This was like early days of COVID. And he was like, I just don't know how to make this. Like, and, but we finally, you know, it, this was, um, when was this? This was, it was right before the vaccines came out, which, so that would have been early 2021. Is that right? Yeah. I yeah. Think so. So finally, he was like, okay, I think we can do this. We're going to shoot it in a warehouse up in Newburgh, New York. Uh, we're going to do three weeks of rehearsal. 
and like we're going to rehearse it like a play and before we turn any cameras on and then we're going to do it and i remember like even in the lead up to like like i remember even like reserving my airbnb in newburgh being like am i just wasting my money is this just going to fall apart again you know and i'm going to owe like thousands of dollars for canceling an airbnb but you know i know and i don't think i even re- thought like this is real until i i like opened the door to the rehearsal studio and there was brendan and there was darren and i was like okay i think i i think this might actually be a be a movie um so yeah that's kind of a, the, the long version that, that's a, that's a pretty incredible story a lot of stops and starts it sounds like so you said that you it didn't sort of really take place. You didn't start filming it until after the pandemic, but well, we filmed it during the pandemic. Oh, right, right. But after, oh. after, after everything shut down. I mean. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. yeah um, right. After you know everything sort of shut down in 2020. But it sounds like you had done sort of most of your work on the screenplay before that. I had done a good amount of work. I mean, over the years, mm-hmm. Darren and I would revisit the script from time to time, or I'd work yeah. with, you know, like Ari uh, at Darren, Ari Handel at Darren's company. Uh, and, you know, we'd toss around ideas. I'd do different drafts. And I enjoyed doing it just because I was like, oh, I'm learning about screenwriting. This is yeah. great. So there, what, when it did become kind of a reality, I think Darren and I went to the script and we were even more rigorous about it. And mm-hmm. so this was like throughout the pandemic leading up to production, we right. had a lot of Zooms. <laughs> And I'm um, sure yes. it did not escape you that this was a play about one man yes. in an apartment <laughs> with very few guests. Yes, it's kind of weird. I mean, and, and using Zoom. <laughs> I know that. And when I wrote it, like teaching online was a totally novel thing. Like, mm-hmm. like it was, it was almost like you had to teach an audience that this was actually a thing. That that online teaching was a thing, <laughs> you know. And now it's like de rigueur. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and to your point, like a story about isolation and the value of human connection is kind of um, hopefully the value of that has kind of increased over the years rather than decreased. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, but it was in, and I think the kind of beautiful thing about coming together in a pandemic to make it is there really was a sense that we were all kind of taking care of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all just because like all five actors in this film are such nice people. And it was such like a joy to to work. It was so nice. It was like, it was just, it was great showing up in the morning. I mean, you know, Brendan was working such long hours, but he has the patience of a saint and the kindness of a saint. Um, And I, and I think that kind of like generosity and kindness and the, you know, the fact that we were all taking care of each other, many of us doing the first thing since lockdown, uh, it kind of permeated the whole set in a really beautiful way. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and, and really heartening to hear about, you know, being this film, what it being about what it's about. Yeah. Um, that sort of spirit infected everybody. That's really great. I think probably the most notable example of this being opened up in any way <laughs> is that scene at the beginning where we see someone get off a bus. Yeah. And we don't 
understand who that is or what the significance of it is until much, much later in the film. Um, and obviously this is not a scene that's in the stage play. What were your thoughts when you were writing this about opening the film with with this with this? That image? was actually that was an idea that Darren had uh, mm. on set when we were filming. He was like, oh. "What if he had this kind of crazy idea?" And I didn't really get it at first. Uh, and I was just sort of like, but it was one of those things where he was like, and his version of it, he, I remember he had a fuller version of it that actually had kind of more scenes. And the more that we talked about it, we thought like, well, what if it's just that one thing? You know what I mean? Like, and like a stranger arriving to town. Uh, and and I remember it wasn't until I saw the rough cut that I was like, oh, that really works. Um, but it was a moment where I was just sort of like, I mean, Darren's the filmmaker, so I I completely you know trust his instinct and and uh it really wasn't until i saw it that i was like oh that's a really interesting way to invite the audience in you know it's like we're also arriving here yeah it's it's pretty cool it's the start of a journey as yeah. it were yeah exactly. yeah when you were adapting this what were your main thoughts about because you know you don't want to leave the room it's very important for the ideas of the play that it's this one location so what was your what were your ideas if any about how to turn this from something that is on the stage which is more static mm -hmm. to something you know to a film that's all about moving images yeah, I, I really, I mean, there was this sort of obvious thing of like, what dialogue can we cut that can mm -hmm. be told in silent scenes? You know, like one, one of the biggest uh, moments of that, I think, is um, there's a very key moment where Charlie decides to call Ellie. Uh, and in the play, it's still in dialogue. Yeah. You know, he, he goes to uh, Hong's character, Liz, and says, I think I need to call Ellie. Uh, and in the screenplay, I remember thinking like, maybe this is a silent scene. I mean, maybe this is something that like, Brendan can do with his eyes and and Brendan like Brendan can like tell a novel with his eyes it's kind of incredible what, what he can do and so that's maybe one of my favorite shots of the film after he is like googling his congestive heart failure and getting upset and kind of realizing that that he's that his mortality is he's sort of facing his own mortality and then the shot goes to Brendan's face and he makes the decision to call Ellie and it's such a beautiful scene and actually that that image became like the image that's been uh, used in the poster and kind of like proliferated, proliferated around like that's the moment he decides to call ellie which i think is such a, a beautiful moment so there's stuff like that and then there was also like what is the uh what is the architecture of this space and about three four years ago i remember I had the idea for adding a second bedroom because in the play it just says a one-bedroom apartment um, but I thought, okay, what if there is a second bedroom that is kind of the archaeology of his relationship with Alan, you know, because in the play, he has a very big monologue in which he explains to Thomas uh, about the death of his partner. Uh, and that's not in the movie. And so in its stead, I, I had that second bedroom moment to to sort of like open that up for the audience of like, there's a history here that is deeply unresolved for this character. Yeah, so it's things like that, you know? And and then like other things like the pizza boy was an addition for the movie, the bird was an addition for the movie. Uh, just finding ways to kind of like find the life of the apartment. I like that, finding the life of the apartment. I like that, I like that, that image a lot, especially since I, I'm really glad you brought up that that history because there are so many things in this play that we don't, 
really discover the full meaning of or the full story of until much later. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit as a writer, how you find that balance when you go like, okay, I've sort of strung this along long enough. This is the moment where we have to explain this or present this piece of information. You know, it's funny. When I was first writing the play, there, there's a very um, key moment. I don't want to give away too much plot, but of like, course, yeah. you know, there's a very key moment where you realize what Hong Chao's character, what her actual relationship to Charlie is. Yes. And, and it comes kind of late-ish in the movie. It's, I think, maybe even past the halfway point. And when I wrote it up until then, I, I remember writing that scene and being like, oh, I hadn't told the audience this yet. And, and so it was kind of like naturally baked in as the revelation. And I'm glad it happened that way because there was no like, I didn't have to put fig leaves over anything. It just naturally, of course it wouldn't come up because it's such a painful history. Why would it ever come up between these two people? It's the, the great unspoken thing that, that has, you know, stalled both of their lives in, in discreet ways. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of it is kind of instinctual, I think. And then, uh, you know, obviously you have to go back and reverse engineer um, mm-hmm. when you do discover things about characters. But I also like as a writer, when I'm writing a first draft, I really try to stay kind of light on my feet in terms of like what I think is going to happen in terms of like the plot mechanics. Yeah, uh, because like it's, it's almost like I need to. Um, Get, get get the skeleton together and and the more that i like cram it in and like force every moment the more that you can hear the voice of the writer do you know what i mean yeah. or the hand of the writer yeah. and it's you know it's one of my least favorite things when i'm like watching a a play or a movie and all of a sudden like the writer shows up and you're just like i i oh like <laughs> you know it's 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 always so so dispiriting because like you just want to live with these people um and and you know, if anything, like I, I want to disappear behind these characters in this story. So, um, and then the rewriting process is insanely rigorous and takes forever, but, uh, but that's how I approach first drafts. Very cool. I think there are a lot of, you know, potential ultimate, you know, messages and themes to, to this movie. And I think different audience members are going to naturally find themselves gravitating towards different things, towards different aspects of it. But if you could have everyone who sees the whale walk away with one thing or one idea, yeah. what what would that be for you? You know, it's 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 funny because like normally I uh I, I get frustrated when I see things if I feel like they get boiled down to a piece of statement of like this is what you should believe about this. You know, like I don't think drama is the correct arena to like deliver singular messages. So so I think there are a lot of different things that you can take out of it. But that being said, I think there is kind of a, a, a broad theme here, which is, you know, I, I made the decision pretty early on is that I didn't want to be a cynical writer. I, I'm not a cynical person and I, I don't think my writing is cynical. Uh, I think it's it's pretty earnest, actually. And uh, I, I think it, it gets pummeled a little bit because it's earnest and because it wears its heart on its sleeve. And so it's easy to, you know, when you wear your heart on your sleeve, it's easy to get it stabbed. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's uh, very true. But I do think that like um, the play is ultimately the play and the screenplay is actually is ultimately about hard won hope. 
uh, and faith in other people. I think pretty much every play I've ever written is inherently about the tragedy of isolation and the value of human connection. And I know that sounds like rosy eyed and simplistic, but I actually think that cynicism is incredibly simplistic and easy and, and uh, anti-intellectual mm -hmm. and it masquerades intelligence you know i think um, we see that in this piece a little bit with um with ellie that's right yeah that's yeah, very it's simplistic fun. view yeah. yeah it's very simplistic it's easy to believe in nothing it is the mm -hmm. easiest thing in the world to believe in nothing having faith in other people is incredibly hard and i'm not talking about like platitudes or easy answers or hallmark movies i'm i'm talking about yeah. like real hard one faith in other people it's it's a it's an incredibly difficult project uh and i think especially now that i'm a dad uh, that project has become even more important. Uh, like I, I, I don't have the luxury of being pessimistic. I have a five-year-old. Like that's that would be such an injustice to her to be a pessimistic person. You know? Yeah. So so yeah. Hard one. Hope. I hope. I hope that's and I and I hope that that is. I, I believe that that has value now, especially in 2022. No. One one would hope. Yeah. <laughs> the world the way it is. Yes. And now I know you said that, you know, you had before this, you had really just wanted to focus on being a New York playwright. And then this happened and it was, sounds like a really wonderful experience. Will we perhaps see any future films written by you or should we be looking more to the stage for that? I mean, I'm never going to stop writing plays. Like it's just, it's in my blood. I love it. Um, there's so much freedom that I have as a writer in the theater. That being said, I think I would be pretty foolish not to uh, walk through this door that's been open for me. You know, I had a three month master class in filmmaking watching Darren make this movie, you know, and, yeah. and standing alongside it watching him make this movie. And I would be pretty foolish not to not to not to go forward with that. So I don't know what it's going to look like, um, <laughs> but I, I, I very much hope I get the opportunity. And we've talked about, you know, what we may want the audience to learn from the film, but what was the thing that you learned most while making this, while going through this whole process? Boy, I think it's something that I learned writing this in the beginning, and it's something that I get taught over and over again, which is like, as a writer, I have to get out of my own way. Like, mm -hmm. like I have to just write the thing and, and stop trying to make it clever, stop trying to like write good lines, stop trying to make fancy plot mechanics or, or, you know, like revelations or, you know what I mean? Just like tell the story, you know what I mean? Like, you, like you'll work out the kinks later, you know, just like get out of your own way, focus on the characters. Don't try to be fancy and just tell the story. Uh, and, and I keep getting reminded of that over and over and over as a writer. Mm. there we go i think we're out of time for today but <laughs> thank you so much for for talking about the film and for sharing your insights on everything and best of luck to you on thank your you so future much. endeavors thanks so much for having me of course the film really really it moved me and spoke to me in a lot of ways so well, thank, thank you, you thank you so much for thank for you. writing it and for all the work yeah no, I, I don't really. I appreciate you taking the time. This was really nice. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it as well. <laughs> All right, Daniel. Well, I hope right. to talk to you again sometime. So. Yeah, same. Thank you All so right. much for taking the time. See you later, man.
Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Dan Baer's interview with the screenwriter for The Whale, Samuel D. Hunter, here on the next Best Picture podcast. The Whale is currently playing a limited release in New York and LA, and will be opening everywhere wide on December 21st from 824, and is up for your consideration for Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Actor for Brendan Fraser, and Best Picture of the Year. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it, because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.